0: popular folk tale about three blind men who walk around an elephant to determine what kind of beast this animal might be. And one of them took hold of the elephant's tail and said, oh, this creature is like a rope. The second man happens to take hold of the tusk and says, this creature is like a spear. And the third man pats the side of the animal and says, this creature is surely a wall. Now obviously, if any of them understood and had all of their insights at one time, these men would have understood a great deal more about elephants than any of them would have known alone. Christmas is a bit like that too. Each holy season has a great consuming centerpiece. The baby in the manger on Christmas day, Easter morning resurrection, but it is in being willing to work thoughtfully through all the other parts of the story that give us that fuller, truer picture of exactly what this holy season is all about. We look at pieces of the Christmas story to help us understand Christmas from multiple perspectives with varying layers of meaning. And together they create for us this wonderful, beautiful mosaic that fleshes out for us the fullest meaning of Christmas. They give us a different way of looking at the world because now we can see Jesus more clearly. Now traditionally, as you probably notice, we place purple on the altar during Advent. Purple is the color of penitence, of confession of sin, of remorse for all the ways that we have deceived God and ourselves. I think of Advent and Lent as kind of like bookends. They both focus on our sinfulness, our repentance. They focus on being changed, on God bringing something new to us and in us. We stumble over John the Baptist about this time every year, don't we? He is Jesus' cousin, but he doesn't sound much like Jesus when he preaches. He didn't preach in a big, beautiful church like this one. Nobody would give him a pulpit. So he was relegated to the Galilean outback, the desert. You had to go to the desert in order to hear a fiery, in-your-face sermon from John. Now, when I was a teenager, I heard preachers like that, but never in my own church. We would drive out to the edge of town and pull the car into some dusty field, roll the windows down, and listen to this itinerant, tent preacher holler. There, a great big tent had been pitched with folding chairs that held dozens and dozens and dozens of people. So to get a preacher who shouted and whooped and knew how to play a guitar and who might handle a snake or two, you had to go to the edge of my town to find that. But who really wants to hear preachers like that? Well, apparently, a lot of people. They said that multitudes came to see John. When John preached, people dropped what they were doing to go and to see him. Sometimes I think that we preachers, safe behind our protective pulpits, believe that when you come to church, you come to be stroked and soothed and that it all has to end with, and they lived happily ever after. And I think oftentimes when we soften our tone and sugarcoat the sermon, We sell you short." That was not John's style. John came to his contemporaries, in this case the Jews, the comfortable elite who understood that being a certain way is enough without having to integrate your faith with your actions. And they said, we have Abraham as our father. We belong. We are insiders. We have credentials. We have a pedigree and we are certified and guaranteed for all that is to come. And John the Baptist looked at them squarely and said, who your daddy is just doesn't count. Only one thing counts, the fruits that you produce, the outcome of your actions. Now, John is not worried here that people might believe that works save you. He says, go, do good works. You must act in peculiar ways visible ways that make a difference. In John's very short initial speech he lifts the agenda for Advent from being complacent to intentionally doing something in the world. Advent is for thinking through the outcome and effects of our life. A couple of weeks ago my mother passed away and at her funeral I heard some wonderful stories of the kind things she had done in her life. Some of those stories happened before I was even born. The purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate to the point that it makes a difference so that you have lived a life that is well lived. What are you going to be remembered for doing? John must have made his point. Because he got their attention and they asked him to explain it more. The text from then on is preoccupied with the question, what should we do? It's not a bad Advent question. We are told that three types of people came to John to ask the question. The first one who came, Are the crowds, just the undifferentiated population. They come and they ask, what should we do? What, What should we do that will really make a difference in the world? Well, now, John is not any sweet, fuzzy pastoral counselor. Things are too urgent. He doesn't have time for them to wait to figure it out. So he answers them directly, specifically, and abruptly. Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Succeed. Nothing here about ethical niceties or moral purity or metaphysical explanations or even arguments about how economic systems work. For John, Advent is concrete, and it concerns love your neighbor's stuff. John apparently lived in a society where some had several coats. Perhaps some of them had hardly ever been worn. Perhaps they had a whole closet full of coats that they rarely used. John lived in a society where some people didn't have a coat and shoes, and he thought that all God's children should have a coat and shoes. John suggests Advent is about rethinking this contrast. There is a growing contrast between those multi-coated people and the no-coat people. And surely, John is not talking about the little charity gesture that we give a coat or two out of our closet because we really don't use that one much. John is talking about the redistribution of coats, however that is to be done. Not just the extra coat, but half the closet, half the shoes, half the goods, half the security, half the wealth. What must be done, says John, is to commit overt acts to make our community like the kingdom of God. If we really want to lift Jesus high, then we need to bend low to love the least, the poor, and the refugee. Because that's the kind of worship that God sees. And doing this will run well beyond celebrating your daddy. Now, if that is not enough, a second voice comes to John. Having gotten the message about being and doing, they ask the teacher again, What should we do? Now, that second voice is that of the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors had been rattled by John's words What should we do? What should we do differently? What should we do that we're not doing? Tax collectors are feared in that ancient society because they had imperial money quotas to meet. But they could be arbitrary and go over those quotas and everything over they got to keep for themselves. That arrangement, as you can imagine, created some major opportunities for exploitation. And the ones who raised the question a second time are the money managers, the ones who knew the intricacy of tax rules, They are the ones who are insiders, who know how to cut corners, who how to prey on the poor, the gullible, the vulnerable. And John, once again, unflinchingly answers them directly, specifically, abruptly, and says, do not collect any more tax than what is owed. Now, there's probably not too many tax collectors here today. But in several ways, many of us buy, sell, and trade, and operate among the working poor, the vulnerable, the innocent. And John says we need to curb our tendency to want more, to limit our passion to have and to hold that comes at the expense of others. You see, true Advent is a startling act because it runs directly contrary against that consumer frenzy that Christmas tends to be. John cuts through all of that, and he says that those who will receive the coming of Christ must know when enough is enough and stop, and stop, without seizing another person's need for the purposes of just being self-indulgent. And I wonder if his hearers must have thought, but that's the whole point of being a tax collector. And then comes a third questioning voice to John. They ask, as we ask, what should we do? And this time it is the voice of the soldiers. And they come to say, what what do we do now? Now soldiers are there to prevent chaos. They were also there to represent Rome to make sure that nobody forgets who to respect and who to pay taxes to. These keepers of established order also raise that question, what should we do? It is a question for all that are keepers of order and discipline, but it not only includes the army and the police. It includes the internal cops inside each of us that pronounce judgment on others. And John says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, be satisfied with your wages. But then he goes a little further, and he says, "Hey, don't be a heavy. Do not lean on others with the weight of your office. Give people room to live their lives, and give people room to disagree with you. Let people have space outside your supervision of their life. And do not monitor those who disagree with your views. Do not assume that you are always right. Every time. You see, John knew that we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely and so beautiful that they will want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So we have to do, we must act and we must act in new ways. We must make room to act. We must act differently in ways that we thought we would not, as with the coats and the shoes, to let go of whatever it is we are hoarding too much of, and as one who manages money and has a chance to exploit, to leave off our greediness at the expense of others, and to one who enforces and judge not to be a strict enforcer. We need to lean off of that way that we dominate other people's lives. And we need to not rush to control everything to our advantage because we can. Because soon, and very soon, someone is coming that is not overly possessive or overly exploitive or overly controlling. And as John moved out of this question and answer session, the people were filled with expectation and and they were wondering Wondering. Filled with expectation. Again, not a bad script for Advent. They were filled with expectations because they knew something good is getting ready to happen. And that's what it takes to have Advent, to be open to God's newness, because they expected something new and they were questioning, what do I have to do to get this? What do I have to let go of so that my hands are empty and I can receive it? They were curious, and they knew that this was a new and different time because of John's demanding invitation. John's demand was also to not only do, but to quit doing, to quit doing the things that blind you against God's newness. You can almost see John picking up on their excitement and their bewilderment, and then after that question and answer period was over, John gives them an enormous promise they've never heard before. It partly frightened them and partly dazzled them. And he said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now for them, I would imagine that would sound pretty weird. For us, sometimes it does sound a little odd. We who are relatively affluent and sophisticated don't talk that way very often. We don't expect it, and sometimes we don't even welcome it. However, being baptized with the Holy Spirit does not always mean charismatic acting out. It means that we may be visited by a spirit of openness, generosity, and energy that will come over us and empower us to do obedient things that we have not yet done. Kingdom things that we didn't think we had it in us to do. Neighbor things that might make us cringe a little bit. The whole tenor of Advent is that God may act in us and through us and beyond us more than we imagine because Jesus is on his way among us. John is not the newness. John preps us for the newness. And if we want to be immersed in God's life-giving power, then he says we must share our coat and our shoes, and we must manage money in a loving way, and we must quit judging in a controlling way in social transactions. Now, who would have thought such concrete little acts are the tactic by which God's newness comes to live in us? You see, Advent is not for shopping and parties and decorations. It is for thinking about the demands and the love of Jesus that will break the tired patterns of fear and self-absorption in our lives. And it is no wonder that in the very next verse in Luke 3, King Herod arrested John, and imprisoned him, tried his best to silence him. What John said was dangerous for business as usual. And Herod and his company preferred to imagine that their credentials were enough. They didn't want the newness and tried to stop it before it ever came. But what we know that Herod didn't know and never even suspected is that John's advent invitation cannot be silenced or arrested It continues to invite. It addresses us in the day, and it haunts us at night. And sometimes, sometimes, if we let it come among us, it can transform us. At our best, in some shining moment of truth, when we are forced to admit that we are not who we ought to be. Somebody like John holds up a mirror to us, and we see our faces and we fall on our knees and ask God for an axe to cut us down or to kindle a fire and purge us or to give us rebirth, cleansing and change. John promised the possibility of that turnaround. So get ready. God is coming. This was John's message. And I believe that nothing and no one is beyond the reach of a gracious, forgiving God who comes to us so that we might come to him. That is still John's message today. You can't get to Christmas without first meeting John in the wilderness. Multitudes have heard him and responded to him. And by God's grace, you will too. Let us pray, my friends.